Good morning and welcome to Rising Fridays. In case you were unaware of what day of the week it is, we've got you covered here at Rising Fridays. And we have a fantastic show for you today. As you can imagine, it's been a busy week and next week will be busy as well. Ryan is still in recovery mode today, so he's remote again. How are you feeling, Ryan? Almost all the way better. Uh, it's it's been a it's been a ride, uh, but looking forward to being back there like next week. That's uh, I'll put it that way. <laughs> This sounds good. Well, I'm looking forward to that, too. Today, we're going to dig into Amazon labor union leader Chris Small's testimony on Capitol Hill yesterday. We're also going to break down, of course, the New York Times massive piece on Tucker Carlson. We're going to talk to Nina Turner about what's next for her and the progressive movement after her loss to Chantel Brown for Ohio's 11th congressional district. But first, Ryan, we have to talk about the aftermath of the abortion memo leak. Uh, we're going to spend a decent amount of time on that today, actually, because it was such a bombshell. Um, before we transition into our first guest, who I think will be able to provide some great insights from the right on this, how did you react, Ryan, when you saw the Politico report of Justice, of Justice Alito's opinion, uh, majority opinion, a draft from February that said the Supreme Court or indicated the Supreme Court was poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, which was then authenticated by Chief Justice Roberts? Well, I thought that they would overturn Roe v. Wade because they actually already basically did overturn Roe v. Wade by allowing the, the Texas law, which was in complete violation of Roe v. Wade, you know, to go into effect. But I thought what they would do is in June issue some kind of mealy-mouthed opinion that in effect overturned Roe and Casey, but didn't come out and say so, so that you could continue to have what we've had for the last few months, with which is this insistence among a lot of uh, abortion rights advocates that Roe is, has been gutted, uh, but the kind of... Uh, people who want to gut row saying no no it hasn't actually relax there's nothing to nothing to nothing to see here nothing to worry about uh and they would use that process to allow all of these states then to go forward with their own restrictions so i was wrong about that instead alito apparently has four votes plus his fifth vote for a full-throated kind of renunciation of the last 50 years uh or the last maybe 150 years of progress post, uh, you know, post, or maybe you can go, go back to the New Deal when we started kind of forming a new, a new country, a new society that moves forward progressively, maybe go back to uh, TR. And he ju just says, it's done. It, we're overturning it. We're, we're going back to what, what it was before. And any state that wants to ban it can just do whatever they want. That, that's how common law did it back in England in the 1600s. That's how we're, that's how we're going to do it now. And just not not mincing words, I was I was surprised that they felt the the kind of impunity to go to go that far. What what what, what was your reaction to it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's two layers here. The fact that it leaked, um, I actually don't think that's just sort of traditionalist nonsense. I think that is actually very serious. Um, and I think it's sort of always going to psychologically haunt justices as they're making their opinions. They are supposed to be sort of the one branch that is separate uh, from the whims of public opinion and the pressures that public opinion can create. So that's alarming. Um, and the opinion itself was full-throated in a way that I'm on the other side of this debate, uh, on the other side of the road debate, on the other side of the abortion 
abortion question. I thought it was very, very heartening and surprisingly so, although perhaps not surprising from Justice Alito. And actually on that question, we're interviewing people on both sides of the Roe question today. We're interviewing people on both sides of the abortion debate. And we're lucky to have somebody who is going to provide us some insight from the right and from the pro-life movement. And I, I want to introduce now Vice President of Communications of the Susan B. Anthony List. Mallory Carroll is here with us right now to discuss. Mallory, welcome and, and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. So actually, I want to start off by asking you for your reaction to Justice Alito's opinion. What I've seen on the right has been a lot of uh, satisfaction with the way Justice Alito wrote out this opinion. As Ryan said, there was sort of perhaps a possibility it could have been mealy-mouthed. It could have been, um, you know, it, it could have been vague in different ways. And yet what we got was sort of very, a very fire-breathing anti-Roe opinion that countered what was actually written in Roe in many Anyways, um, so Mallory, what were you guys thinking over at SBA List? Yeah, well, we were very encouraged by the the draft. Um, you know, it's just a draft. We're hopeful that the final opinion will resemble this um, very much, perhaps with an additional vote from the chief. Um, but I, I think that it behooved the, it behooves the justices to be clear on this point because. They, they chose to take up this Mississippi Dobbs case, but there are dozens of, uh, of abortion cases that are going through the lower courts right now on discrimination abortion bans, on uh, more regulations for health and safety standards for abortion facilities. And so the lower courts need guidance. I think that if um, it's anything less than this full-throated, very clear repudiation of Roe, um, that it really would just kick the can down the road and the justices would have to uh, deal with this perhaps next year, next term, because there's just such a um, momentum of abortion litigation that's been making its way up through the courts for the last 10 years or more. That's a great point. Yeah. And, and Mallory, I have my own ideas about where this anti this anti-abortion movement comes from, has come from over the last 50 years. Emily and I have talked about it before. We'll talk about it again later in the show. But I kind of want to ask you from your perspective, just just a basic question that I don't quite understand, even though I understand, I think, the structural, historical and, and movement based reasons that there's such a push to ban abortion. What I still can't quite get my head around is why, like why? Like, I, I understand why why people would have their own individual opinions about abortion, but I don't understand why the necessity of forcing that on the rest of the country and forcing somebody that you don't even know to go through childbirth. Like I, 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 so help me just understand that. Yeah, it really depends on what um, your understanding is of what's happening inside the womb during pregnancy. Um, is that a human life or is it not? If it's not a human life, if it's a um, you know, if it's the equivalent of your appendix, uh, you know, a, a teeth that a tooth that needs pulling, um, then there's there's no reason for us to be doing what what it is that we're doing, right? But this is a second human being with um, with a rights we believe that deserves equal protection under the law. This is a human rights battle, and uh, that is why that is what has driven um, this movement since Roe versus Wade to seek protection for the most vulnerable. They have no other voice but ours. Um, they're unseen, unheard, but they're an entire constituency, 50 million lives lost since Roe versus Wade. So if you believe as I do, and as science teaches us, that 
there is a unique human being from the moment of conception, um, then you want to fight for those lives. And Ryan and I, and I are... Yeah. Go ahead, Ryan. No, I mean, I, I totally understand that a lot of people believe that, and a lot of people, their faith teaches them that. There are other faiths, the Jewish faith, for instance, which believes that a, abortion is fundamental. It's a, it's a religious, it's part of, it's part of religious freedom to people in the Jewish faith. They wrote uh, different amicus briefs, cons- even, even the you know, conservative branch and others saying that this, this is a violation of our religious freedom. And so I understand, like I, like I said, I understand why you could believe that, why strip religious freedom away from, in this case, the Jewish people. It's not really a question of religious belief. Uh, my religious beliefs are sincerely held, but they really have nothing to do with my position. Um, you know, there. This is a scientific reality um, that we are more aware of since 1973 than ever before. What is going on inside the womb? Um, the, this, the life of this unborn child that's growing, um, the heart beating, uh, you know, as early as five weeks, and the ability of the child to feel pain as. Uh, at least by 15 weeks, which is the point in question. Um, and I think it's it's important to remember that this question that you're asking me would be more relevant if we were talking about um, banning all abortion. But what's at question here with Roe versus Wade, what Roe versus Wade and subsequent abortion jurisprudence from the court has allowed is abortion on demand up until the moment of birth. Um, paid for by taxpayers. It, it is a very extreme position that our country is in. We're one of seven countries worldwide. We're an international outlier. 47 out of 50 European countries limit abortion at 15 weeks, if not earlier. Um, so what we are hoping as a pro-life movement, the reason we've been um, looking towards this moment with the court is to see the Supreme Court take their thumb off the scale and allow the American people through their legislators to enact laws that reflect their values. And their values are largely not, our values are largely not the Demo- the current status quo, which is what Democrats are hoping to uh, further enshrine, regardless of what happens with the court. We've got a, another vote coming up next week on the Women's Health Protection Act um, to, for, to, to, regardless of what happens in the court, enshrine abortion on demand up until the moment of birth, performed by non-doctors with as little regulation as possible, and to prevent at all the states um, from from acting on the will of the people to limit this in any way. So it's a radical one-size-fits-all approach that doesn't work for our nation. We need to be able to use the tools of democracy to to debate and find consensus, and other people can feel free to weigh in on this debate. Um, people for whom they're, this is a religious argument, I've seen um, non-religious people, uh, candidates in, in Pennsylvania and Arizona and elsewhere, call abortion sacred. Um, I don't think they're quoting any particular religious doctrine. It's just deeply held to them. So this is what's at stake. People have to understand how extreme our nation is uh, when it comes to abortion policy. We just want to be able to modernize our law, move it back, um, and to have a robust debate about what's going on in the womb. People need to know. And the nation is increasingly pro-life, I think, because of these advances in science and medicine that have allowed us to know um, what's going on inside the womb. 
And so Ryan and I are going to get into this a little bit later in the show, um, but Ryan is, is openly on the left, I'm openly on the right, and you went on uh, ABC this week and talked to Terry Moran and had a really interesting exchange with Terry, um, who pushed you on the question of prosecuting women, prosecuting mothers who, you know, in a post-real world, have an abortion and state laws create a problem for them um, and treat them as, you know, murderers, basically, uh, prosecute them as though they were involved in a murder. And it was interesting to watch because Terry Moran uh, seemed to have a very clear sort of perspective that he was happy to uh, air. And I actually think the question, though, is, is fair um, of, you know, how if, if you sincerely believe this is uh, proven by science to be a life and thus it is a taking of a life, um, you know, defending that as you did on air, um, I, I think is really important. And I know it's difficult. So I guess I just wanted to ask you about it. as this week unfolded, you guys were everywhere at SBA, at SBA list, much to the chagrin of some people on the left who don't even think you should be interviewed. Um, how have you interpreted the media reaction this week? Um, and what do you think the danger is of some of those networks just not talking to pro-life people anymore and just hosting one side of the debate? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's very interesting. It seems to me um, over the last week that um, the Washington Post and the New York Times in particular, every single reporter is now on the abortion beat. I've talked to more people that I've <laughs> Uh, individual reporters, they seem to be all writing the same story. I've never talked to them before. I'm hoping that these stories come out well. I'm glad that they're asking for a pro-life perspective, but when it comes to the major TV networks, I'm not sure who else from the pro-life side was on um, CNN or, or ABC. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's hard to, to view all of the coverage while you're also trying in this moment to respond. But I do think that um, on the ABC interview that Mr. Moran's bias was really um, on display and that anyone can see that. You know, I think journalists are called to be objective and to be as calm as possible when discussing these issues. And he completely betrayed that. Um, I think he was uh, frustrated that I had corrected him a few times earlier in the interview on the reality of abortion in America, the fact that there are late-term abortions happening um, well past the the point that the child is viable, especially here in Washington, D.C., for example, and the fact that the Democratic Party position has not been safe, legal, and rare for a long time now. Um, so I, I would just, I think people need to hear both sides. Um, it's been interesting watching the reaction to the ABC interview, and later this week I had been on CNN to see the comments and some on Twitter, which, you know, is not necessarily real life. Um, but, but I do think that there's um, the, the role of the media is so important in how this decision, how this leak is covered and how the eventual decision is covered, because there's really two narratives that you can sort of see um, emerging. The first is that abortion is going to be illegal overnight if this if the court um, if this ends up being the final opinion, which is simply not true. And the second is the reality, which is, this returns the right of the people uh, to make policy decisions through their elected representatives. And those policy decisions can change based on consensus uh, ebbing and flowing and and on uh, political engagement from the voters. If you don't like a law that someone passes, you can work to unelect them. So and, and really this focus on the tools of democracy um, rather than just a, a blanket um, 
fear-mongering position that this ends abortion overnight, which just simply isn't the case, and that that's the media's responsibility is to report this accurately. Mm-hmm. Like we probably have to run pretty soon, but could, can, can I get you quickly to respond to the, the Poland situation? I'm sure you're very familiar with it. Poland, for viewers, uh, re- you know, over the last several years, restricted abortion rights quite significantly. Since then, you know, two, there have been massive protests because two women di- with ectopic pregnancies died because the hospitals believed that the law barred them uh, from performing abortions, even though the fetuses had died within their wombs. Uh, the government later said, no, 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 in this case, it would have been okay. But when you set up a situation where a procedure is criminalized, we know how institutions operate. We know how people operate. They're going to say, oh, well, this, this might be criminal. So I'm just going to hope for the best for this woman. And both of these young women uh, in their 20s, I believe, both of them died. Uh, and so now they're re-looking at this. Do you, do, you, do you believe that this is a kind of final victory that you guys have won? Or are you going to push it? Is the movement going to push it further? Or do you think that it's going to kill women as people in hosp- doctors and hospitals you know, decline to perform abortions of ectopic pregnancies, you know, a fetus that dies in the tube? Uh, and the result of people dying is going to then create a backlash. What's your read on on how the Poland situation compares to here? Yeah, I'm. We're very concerned as a movement about the well-being of women and children, um, and the situations that you mentioned are tragic. I think we need to look to the states um, that have started to um, enact even before this decision strong pro-life protections. There are always exceptions for um, situations where the the life and health of the mother are at risk. In the cases of these ectopic pregnancies, um, going in and removing that unborn child is not an abortion. Um, That is saving the life of the mother um, when this is is not, the the life of the child is lost at that point because um, because of the circumstances of where the the baby has implanted, and I am I'm very concerned uh, as as we sort of observe this uh, unfold here in the United States about the increase in chemical abortion, and the fact that there may be women with ectopic pregnancies who are being given chemical abortion drugs, which will not resolve an ectopic pregnancy, um, and then then going into emergency rooms without knowing. Um, without the doctors knowing exactly what's going on. There's a very um, disturbing expansion of chemical abortion drugs that's happening right now across America. Um, I absolutely do not support, um, you know, doctors denying health care to women uh, when um, the, in circumstances like there, there were in Poland. Um, that That's simply not what this movement is about. And I think if you look at the the state legislation that's on the books that hopefully will be um, reenacted uh, after a final decision is issued from the court. And if you look at some of the legislation that states are advocating for now, they're always including um, these exceptions for the life and health of the mother. Sure. Well, Mallory, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and being willing to answer these questions. Thank you so much. Have a great Friday. Of course. Thanks, Mallory. Uh, Constructive conversation. And of course, we will be talking to somebody um, who is a leader in the pro-choice movement as well. So we'll we'll have uh, this conversation will continue throughout the episode today. Uh, But for now, we're going to tell you what is on our radars right after this.
All right, Ryan, what is on your radar? Emily, I am looking at Salem Sam. So Justice Samuel Alito, in his draft opinion, striking down Roe and Casey, relied on some rather extraordinary figures to make his case, going back to the 17th and 18th century England to cite what he said was common law precedent against the legality of abortion. Now, some scholars have rejected his history as cherry-picked and not an accurate understanding of abortion and the law back then. But for today, let's just assume that he's correct and that common law in the 1600s did, in fact, ban abortion. So the two men Alita relies on most heavily are Sir Edward Coke and Sir Matthew Hale. Now, people have already picked up on the fact that Coke and Hale are responsible for crafting many of the laws around witch trials, defining how they should be, be for performed, who counts as a witch, and how they should be executed. Now, you might think that alone would be enough to discount their takes on abortion, which at the time they were alive was quite dangerous and either involved some type of medicinal attempt or an unsterilized procedure that could easily lead the woman to bleed out or die later of an infection. Childbirth, too, was extremely dangerous with cases of, quote, baby fever routine. But even setting all that aside, it's, it's telling that Alito relies on Sirs Hale and Koch for their broader views on women's rights, or more accurately, that women do not have rights at all. So both of them believed and used their position at the height of the legal world to enforce that women were effectively an appendage of men and that a woman's father or later her husband had essentially full legal authority over them. So Alito notes that the Constitution includes no reference to abortion, but it also includes no reference to, say, divorce. And if we went by common law at the time of the founding, or the time Sirs Hale and Coke were executing witches, divorce would be basically impossible for women today. Now, women also had no right, according to William Hale, to refuse their husband's sex. And therefore, a man could never be guilty of raping his wife. That notion wasn't completely eradicated in the U.S. until 1993. A, a Twitter account called Literature Lady, this is, this is a professor who studies women and gender from the 1500s to the 1700s, posted a viral thread recently that goes into a lot more of the history. Coke and Hale also both believed it was the man's legal right, and in fact his duty, to beat his wife to keep her in line. Hale made sure to say that a man shouldn't beat a woman in anger, but only for a purpose and in a composed set of mind. There was, of course, no separation of church and state at this point, and religious duty and legal duty were linked. Now, I bring this up not as some sort of historical gotcha that undercuts Alito's argument. Alito can just go and find some other way to justify his decision. That's what he would do. What strikes me about it is Alito's choice to do this. He didn't have to spend several pages talking about these guys in his opinion. In fact, if he was trying to be clear that all of this is really about babies and the unborn and the Constitution and totally not about controlling women and empowering an old school version of the patriarchy, the very last thing he would want to do is root his opinion in the words of men like Sirs Koch and Hale. This was a deliberate choice, and it feels like spiking the football, a way for the five Republican justices to say, yes. This is about using the state to restore the power of the patriarchy. This actually is about women and their place in society. And so rather than do my normal thing and run through another few centuries of history here, I'll just wrap it up now, partly because I still have COVID and was too tired to prepare all that history, but also because, Emily, you know this as well as anybody, although you come at it from a different perspective than I do. So what am I getting wrong here? How is this not Alito kind of screaming from the mountaintop that the vision of Sir Matthew Hale is now restored in the law? 
There's actually a really fascinating answer to this question, and it's because Roe actually cites Hale as well. And what Alito is doing, and this is why Roe has always been, I think, shaky. Um, and even Ruth Bader Ginsburg was critical of Roe, I think for the reason, particularly because of its interpretation of the 14th Amendment, which, as uh, Alito says in this opinion, it has to be sort of deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition to qualify under the 14th Amendment. And that's the argument that Roe makes. And so in the section of uh, Alito's opinion, which is like 98 pages long where he's going through common law history. He's not even talking about America at that point. He's actually just litigating how it was uh, discussed in the common law, kind of pushing back a little bit on how Roe interpreted um, common law and saying, actually, you know, there were there were different sort of standards, quickening standards, all of that going on um, to say basically that it's he's taking this tour sort of of the Western legal tradition to get up to where we are now and and he's saying, contra row, this standard is this right to privacy um, is, is not rooted, deeply rooted in the nation's history and in our concept of, quote, ordered liberty, which is actually the standard that Roe set. And that's why I think, honestly, Roe, it's, you know, when, when uh, we talk about why this is like shocking to some people, it really, it, it shouldn't be surprising to anybody because as much as people talk about settled law, I don't know, Ryan, how you sort of feel about Roe itself and, and the legal question, but I understand why so many pro-choice people and feminists have been scared for so long because Roe is just not the, the most, it is just not on the most solid legal ground by any means. And I do think Alito was sort of champing at the bit to go in on that 14th Amendment question. And do you, th do you think that, see, the, the reason I've been skeptical of of that idea, and I, I I agree with you in the sense that I've I've heard from lots of different legal scholars that everybody seems to agree that Roe was you know poorly written, uh, that it you know it wasn't well constructed, that perhaps equal protection you know would have been a, a much smarter way, uh, you know on, you know since not everybody can get pregnant, it's it's compl it's unequal to you know ban a procedure that only applies to people who can get pregnant, it's, you know wh whatever or whatever equal protection uh, kind of analysis you want to apply to it. Uh, so I find, like I would I would stipulate that I think didn't even R Ruth Bader Ginsburg right say that it wasn't yeah. like yep. terribly well well written opinion, uh, but that feels to me like a sideshow and I'm curious for your take on it because to me this is about power and and this is about Alito having being on firm legal ground only because he has five votes and that's 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 all this is and and you know they they control state legislators they control the supreme court they had they had more than 50 senators in 2015 and so they could uh, block Merrick Garland from being a supreme court just none of that has anything to do with you know the how well you know Roe is constructed or not so if if Roe was written by the most brilliant legal scholar uh, of the 1970s and everybody from right to left said you know, we don't even if we don't agree with this decision it's 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 you know crisply argued and well and well reasoned and root and rooted in history, and so therefore we're going to leave this issue alone. We're not going to organize uh, an entire kind of you know uh, movement to overturn this this precedent. Uh, I don't see that happening. Like I feel like the right still would have pushed ahead on this. No, or do you think it? I, I can't I, I can't see it being any different. I just feel like Alito would have found different things to argue. Alito may have. Um, I, I don't think that's unfair at all. But whether he would have five votes is a totally different question um, in, in my mind, because I think there is a very 
reasonable, and again, it's something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg expressed, a very reasonable concern with the federal override of people's will in different state legislatures. legislatures. Um, and so I think that's you know, generally, genuinely something that is objectionable. And literature lady, the account, so this is interesting, she kind of gave the game away in her tweet where she said, Hale's fingerprints are all over our legal system. So yes, like that's, that is a sad, um, is a sad reality. Um, and that's not to say brilliant people haven't had horrible ideas, but it is you know, a sad reality that's, that some of our law is rooted in these really, really bad ideas. But that's why I think Alito, um, when he was doing, actually, I have his quote here, he says in the second part of his uh, decision, we examine whether the right at issue in this case is rooted in our nation's history and tradition and whether it is an essential component of what we have described as ordered liberty. And so in order to do that, he had to do this mirror image of Roe. Um, and the, it's actually sort of weird how it's a mirror image of it um, and go through the, the common law question. But it's interesting, Roe has been protected, Casey decision is a good example, by Republican appointed justices for years. And that's why there's deep, deep skepticism on the right of, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people on the right were sort of very, very, very cautiously optimistic about the Dobbs case, questioning whether, and still questioning whether Barrett and Kavanaugh um, will sign on to, they're signing on to the draft, the draft is written as though they've signed on to it, but questioning whether Barrett, Kavanaugh, and of course, Chief Justice John Roberts are in favor of this just because um, they have seen, I think, what could be described as timidity on the question of abortion from Republican appointed justices for a really long time. So I think your question is a good one. I think Alito is an outlier um, in terms of appointed justices on the right. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. He would have he would have probably eviscerated it, uh, eviscerated whatever whatever uh, prior precedent there was. And, and it's kind of just it's. It's kind of mind blowing to read him say something like for the first 150 years of this country's founding, you know, abortion was was illegal. Well, you know, for most of that time, women couldn't vote. It's like these are like for 75 years, slavery was was part of it. It's like, OK, these are these are interesting historical points that, that you're making. Uh, but wh where where does it go from there? And I've I've been a little bit actually disturbed to watch how quickly kind of the, the conversation has pivoted from if they can ban abortion, uh, next they're going to ban, uh, they're going to get ban marriage equality, Obergefell is next, uh, you know, contraception is coming, uh, uh, and, and, you know, all of the, all of the other protections that have, that are rooted around the idea that people have these, these privacy rights that have, ba that, that they have these basic rights that aren't necessarily, you know, explicitly written in this 18th century document because it suggests that that this isn't enough to talk about like in, in order to convince somebody that abortion rights are important you also have to convince them that losing abortion rights might also mean that you're going to lose marriage equality and i, I it, it, that feels like the same kind of defensive crouch that 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 democrats and progressives have been in around abortion rights for so long rather than just saying no for, forget like forget where this is going yes it's going very bad places but where it where it is right now it should should be enough like Louisiana now talking about, like we said, like criminalizing, you know, uh, women who uh, might, might even just take birth control if, if these laws make it make it make it through. Why do you think it is that progressives are moving so quickly to uh, what this could mean for other types of rights rather than focusing on this very fundamental right that is being stripped away right now? 
Yeah, because I actually, I mean, I don't think there's any risk to Obergefell, and, and partially because I just don't think there's, even if that happened, I don't think there's any constituency in any state to relitigate that question at all. I don't think anybody should be afraid about that. You know, Ben Shapiro, a lot of people freaked out because he said Obergefell is a bad decision, and he was talking about it in a legal sense, and it is because that 14th Amendment uh, privacy right that went through Roe, and there's many other landmark cases that were hinged on it, that's why Alito isn't endorsing the idea that we can say there's no abortion right because of Hale and because of Coke. He's saying, this was your shady standard, not you, Ryan, but this was the Roe cases. This was the Roe cases standard, and it is bad. So he's litigating exactly why it's bad. Um, so I, I do think that that has just been a, just a, a big mistake uh, from the, the sort of progressive legal movement, or I should say the liberal legal movement, and so many decisions did stack on top of that. That said, um, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's going anywhere um, because there's just, I mean, it, a lot of people said that about Roe for Ever, but uh, th these decisions also referenced other rights as well. So it's it's not entirely a house of cards. We'll have we'll have more on this in, in a moment for sure. Stick around, Emily. Uh, looking forward to what's on your radar. Emily, what's on your radar? All right, well, we face so many problems as a country, problems the political establishment, both left and right, has little interest in solving. They're doing just fine. So yes, it seems irritating that we've been thrust back into a conversation about abortion, about an America without Roe v. Wade, when the immediate material interests of so many people are at stake, thanks to an ignorant and self-interested political class. But whether you're on the left or the right, you're, you'll also believe people's material interests are at stake in the fight over Roe. Now, I know that we're an endangered species, but I remain a social conservative. And on this, I'm very much out of step with the mainstream. There's no pretending otherwise. While America is sp split pretty evenly between people who call themselves pro-life and pro-choice, most oppose overturning Roe when they're asked by pollsters. What is interesting, however, is that the knowledge of Roe is lower than public support for it. So in a 2019 survey, Indiana University researchers found 65.7% of the sample incorrectly answered that abortion would be illegal everywhere if Roe v. Wade were overturned. Fewer people still realize that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and a host of liberal scholars, actually many of them, who support abortion criticized the Roe decision on legal grounds for years and years and years. Ginsburg said it, quote, ventured too far in the change it ordered and presented an incomplete justification for its action. So when Justice Alito's draft majority opinion in the Dobbs case leaked this week, it felt shocking to a lot of people. But the foundation for nationwide legalized abortion has always been fragile. The media just wasn't telling us that. And this is where the media's class blind spot comes in. Support for abortion increases with education and income. People in lower income brackets are much less supportive of abortion than wealthier people. It is absolutely correct, as the New York Times wrote in 2019, that women getting abortions today are far more likely to be poor than those who had the procedure done 20 years ago. Without Roe, there's no question poorer women will disproportionately be in danger from illegal procedures, no question at all. It is a travesty now, and it will be a travesty then, and it will happen. The public is very split on the morality of abortion. Gallup data from 2021 found that respondents asked whether abortion was morally wrong, morally acceptable, or depending on the situation, were more supportive as yearly household income increased. This tracks well with education level too. 
Above the $100,000 a year income threshold, 63% of people said abortion was morally acceptable and 32% said morally wrong. Below the $40,000 threshold, those numbers were almost reversed. Only 38% of respondents said it was morally acceptable, while 55% said it was morally wrong. This pattern is pretty consistent among Gallup's recent research on the question. So from their wealthy educated bubbles, journalists and the corporate class characterize opposition to abortion as an extreme position held mostly among religious zealots who wear ankle skirts. However, those bubbles, uh, outside those bubbles, that is simply not the case. But it's certainly what's caused Democrats like Tim Ryan, for instance, to buckle under pretty immense pressure from the increasingly wealthy and educated Democratic base, going from pro-life and holding positions on a, to now holding positions on abortion that are outside the mainstream, as my former editor Tim Carney outlined this week. And that brings me to CNN's Kirsten Powers, a woman whose job for years has been to opine on politics day in and day out on major platforms. After the draft leaked, Powers tweeted this. All right, that is such a ridiculous argument. It could only be made by someone conditioned into absurd levels of ignorance by our legacy media. But it's a very common argument. Here's another example of it from a professional cable pundit. Even the many pro-life people I know who cite the Bible as their primary reason for their stance on abortion also fundamentally believe it's a matter of medical science. For many, many, many people, that's indeed the primary reason they oppose abortion. So arguments about the First Amendment make absolutely no sense whatsoever. If you believe medical science shows that life begins at conception, you do not believe this is a matter simply of religious freedom or bodily autonomy. And by the way, I am so opposed to the government controlling women's bodies that I support legalized prostitution. I guess that makes me an outlier even among the social conservatives. But when another life is at stake, the question is just not the same. And that's where a fundamental disconnect happens. So on this, I'm actually aligned with renowned atheist Christopher Hitchens. On the fetus, Hitchens once said, quote, it certainly couldn't be dead since the whole battle consisted in how or whether to stop its growing and developing, not metastasizing. Now and then there would be a tussle over whether it was fully a human life, but this was casuistry. What other species of life could it be? Hitchens also argued, all the nonsense we hear about immediate and immediate animation, the point where a soul enters the unborn and so on, is at best beside the point. It has in common with the sectarian feminist view a complete contempt for science and the theory of evolution, which establishes beyond reasonable doubt that life is a continuum. So where do you draw the line in that continuum? Well, it's first important to concede we're talking about a continuum, not a light slip switch that gets flipped on. This is an enormous problem with the abortion discourse. The media has distorted the debate to the point where even high information people don't understand what the other side really, really believes and is thus arguing against a straw man. Whatever you believe on abortion, that is just not at all constructive. In a somewhat famous 1995 essay, former feminist darling Naomi Wolf argued the pro-choice movement seriously harmed itself by shrinking from the reality that, human, that abortion extinguishes a human life that confronting the reality was better for women, that it's important to actually defend a woman's right to exercise this autonomy over the life growing inside of her. Feminism at its best is based on what is simply true, Wolf wrote in the New Republic. While pro-lifers have not been beyond dishonesty, doctor, distortion and the doctoring of images, many of those photographs are in fact photographs of actual DNCs. Those footprints are in fact the footprints of a 10-week-old fetus. The pro-life slogan, abortion stops a beating heart, is incontrovertibly true, while images of of violent fetal death work magnificently for pro-lifers as political polemic, the pictures are not polemical in themselves. They are biological facts. We know this. 
You can call a developing baby a clump of cells. It's true, a zygote is tiny and doesn't resemble those of us on the outside walking around and eating ice cream, um, but its DNA absolutely does. It's the unique product of fertilization. We're all drawing the line somewhere on this continuum, whether it's at fertilization, implantation, or way further down the line. And for most people on either side, that decision is based on an interpretation of science. And so the media's abysmal coverage of abortion politics has left us so poorly equipped to confront the reality of an America without Roe, to, to debate it at the dinner table or at town hall meetings or even on Twitter. It's true that people on the right may not understand all of the nuances of the left's pro-choice argument, but that's the argument given the most serious representation in media and in Hollywood. And by the way, we really talk about the downstream consequences of abortion norms, like how even people including Janet Yellen, have found it increased the number of out-of-wedlock births because it fundamentally changed the way people approached sex. That's why one of the most depressing things I saw in this very depressing week was a series of tweets from Aaron Rupar. At best, here, Rupar is saying it's somehow newsworthy for a news outlet to ask questions of the most powerful people atop a major political movement. At worst, he's saying it's wrong, which is an increasingly popular argument, as you can see from this Keith Olbermann tweet. MSNBC viewers should know what Kristen Hawkins and, and Marjorie Dannenfelser think, not merely because they're pro-life, but because they influence who gets nominated for president, who gets nominated to the Supreme Court, what laws state pass, and much, much more. Fox actually hosted this exchange between Geraldo Rivera and Greg Gutfeld. When you go anywhere on social media, it's something to celebrate, to cherish, right? The unpoured, to shout. To oh, shout. That's the, the, baloney. No, well, yes, that's baloney. Let, I, I can. I'll give cherish you evidence. Cherish the, the wire hanger stuck up their private oh, stuff, trying on. to get what? The, what? Come on, uh, the unborn child. What, come on, that's the, the unborn the child world becomes, becomes, before Rome. This is exactly what I expected. Ah, oh, uh, they bring out the old coat you hanger. Are arrogant. Go, go for it. Geraldo, come on, keep going. Okay, Joey, You're making a fool on of yourself. This, on this, don't, don't you? You know something? <laughs> what? You insulting punk? <laughs> okay. Oh, what? Am I your new Joey, Bongino? <laughs> so even with a healthier, more honest media, this issue would be contentious. There's no question about that. But the media's class blind spot and intense partisan loyalty that it creates has done an enormous disservice to the public. It sanctimoniously lectures us about serving all of the time. Ryan, you probably disagreed with 99% of that, but <laughs> I will ask, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's important to recognize that there is a, a class blind spot in the media when it talks about abortion. And it, it's interesting, you know, when we talk, um, one of the things I love is the left's media criticism, whether it's Chomsky or I talked to Ari Ravenhoft about this um, a couple of weeks ago on, on my podcast. I, I think a lot of it is really accurate. Um, I'm curious what you think about media coverage of abortion and if you also take the perspective that it's important to talk to have the the sort of the so-called mainstream media the legacy media um, engaging you know pro-life leaders in these conversations having them on their air so that we can actually have a pretty accurate depiction of where both people stand I mean the mainstream media is broadly pro-choice I think that that's and and actually people when people when you know I, I've worked in both the mainstream media and and left media and people have when right-wingers say, well, isn't the mainstream media liberal? I'm like, well, yeah, they're liberal in the sense that they're like pro-choice, but yeah. like, uh, and they're, and they're for marriage equality, but like, uh, otherwise they're not, they're not left. So whatever the media and whatever the left and whatever progressive movement, whatever they've been doing for the last, you know, 30 years, they have, has been wrong. Like that, that has like, we, we can, we can say that now as a fact, like they, they have been beaten. Uh, the, the fight isn't over. Uh, you're you're going to see, I think, a huge 
backlash to this over over the years. It's going to come at the cost of women women's lives. I, I, I hope it's I hope it's a minimal number of it before uh, before it, before the backlash forms. But clearly, what what they've been doing hasn't hasn't worked. Now, I think you're you're also going to see, and I'm curious for your take on this, extraordinary right wing overreach on this. Like I I think the idea that elite that people like Alito are content to say, you know what, this is a deeply moral question about the murder of an unborn child, but we're going to leave it up to the states. Like that's completely incoherent. Like if if you believe that that's the case. You wouldn't allow New York and California to go ahead with that. You're only he, he he must only be doing that because he feels like that's politically, you know, what he can get away with at the time. We were talking earlier in the show about Louisiana. Uh, you know, I pulled up the this this legislation that they're pushing now. Uh, they define person as includes a human being from the moment of fertilization and also includes a body of persons. Unborn child means an individual being from fertilization until birth. And so what that would essentially do is say that a fertilized egg is life and therefore anything that ends that is murder and therefore, you know, birth control, IUD, IVF, uh, you know, any, 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 most, most forms of birth control would then be criminalized. Do you feel like that's where this is headed? Yeah, I actually think it's a great question because it's going to be fascinating to watch the pro-life movement sort of make those decisions as they influence state laws um, around the country going forward. And it is, you know, that's why when we had Mallory on earlier, I was really interested in her segment with Terry Moran because I think Moran's question um, is fair. I mean, I think he pushed it in a way that revealed some bias, but the the question is fair. And I think pro-life people have always been split between what's known in the movement as incrementalism and full abolition. Um, and so that that's that debate now is be, going to be pushed to the front and center. I think the existence of Roe really papered over some of those uh, deep, deep questions on actually both the pro-choice movement and in the pro-life movement. Um, and, and so going forward, I think politically, you are absolutely going to see Republican overreach, 100%. Um, there's, there's just no question about it. That is going to happen, and it's not going to be good for Republicans politically. Now, in some cases, I may think <clears throat> that it's that it's principled. I haven't actually looked at the Louisiana law yet, so I don't know. Um, but in some cases, I may say, by all means, overreach uh, because people's lives are at stake. And I think Alito um, was basically saying, you know, he, he was he was not talking about this broad. He, he was talking about Roe in particular. This is a case that was testing Roe, which is why he, he kicked it back to the states, because he said Roe just was a, an overreach in and of itself, a federal overreach in and of itself. But that question is a really, really good one. And again, to go back to Terry Moran, he was pushing Mallory to say, if you fundamentally believe that at every stage of life after conception in the womb, taking that life is, is murder, is taking, of a, is taking a life, then t explain to me why you don't treat mothers who are complicit in it in that way. Um, and is pushing to, to get the pro-life movement to say, yes, that is what we believe. And so how the pro-life movement handles that question tactically and principally is, I, I have no idea yet. Um, but I think, you know, Mallory's answer to Terry Moran was pretty revealing when she said, we don't believe in punishments for the mother. There may be some people in the pro-life movement who do, um, but the sort of mainstream pro-life movement um, has, has that answer prepared. And it, my, my understanding of this movement the entire time has been that it was kind of a, a combination of, you know, true believer foot soldiers and then 
and then also leaders who were kind of cynically weaponizing those those true believers to create this marriage of you know, the kind of fall the Falwell uh, religious right and the cha- and the Chamber of Commerce to like Fusionism. mash together this this coalition right where and the Chamber of Commerce types always believed that they were gonna they were gonna dangle this they were gonna use the fact that Roe existed as a way to get people yes. out out to the polls and then they were gonna funnel them in to this kind of family values patriarchal kind of politics that would then blend nicely with deregulation, neoliberalism, cutting, Mm -hmm. cutting taxes. And that would be the plan, but that they wouldn't actually go and do that. Um, So how, how did, were there more true believers than, than the kind of cynical leaders of this expected there to be, or did the politics of it kind of just drive them there that they, whether they believed it or not, they, in order to win primaries, they had to, Go, go more and more extreme until you're like, oh, we're actually going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah, I, I do think, you know, the majority of the, the conservative movement is genuinely pro-life, but that fusion is sort of marriage with the Chamber of Commerce uh, side is exactly as cynical um, as you just outlined, which is, you know, infuriating um, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life. It is just cynical politics. Um, and, and that's why Mitch McConnell this week was coaching. Uh, he, he was coaching people to say the problem when they're asked about the, the leaked Alito draft, he's at, coaching people to talk about the fact that it was leaked and not the substance of the draft. And that's because there are establishment Republicans who have no will to defend a post-Roe America, um, but have happily sort of pulled the levers in campaigns and and pushed and nudged people to run on opposing abortion in areas where it was politically expedient and convenient. And again, that is as cynical and as like disgusting politics as it sounds. And this is going to create so many healthcare complications for for women who aren't like actually trying to get abortions, but are just trying to get healthcare, and it turns out that their pregnancy is is running into some difficulties, and they're going to find so, so many states and so many hospitals where they can't get what could be life-saving treatments. So, how is that something that has been like? How does the how does the move the religious right think about that? How's the movement think about? It? Is that something? Well, we'll deal with that in a post-row world, or have because forget the like forget the, the tragedies like these women women are going to die like that like yeah, even I, even I setting agree. that aside it's yeah. it's awfully politically damaging too if the if yes. the laws are causing the deaths of of women who whose parents then are going to spend the rest of their lives reminding everybody what these laws did to their 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 grown children or in many cases their ch- children like you know 16 14, 15 16 17 year old girls yeah. No, I, I agree on both points. I think that's absolutely going to happen. I, I, I don't think it's going to be politically convenient for a lot of Republicans to have to answer those questions. And, and my response as somebody who is pro-life would be, you know, if you are principled, you are pro-life, you defend it, you be honest about your position um, and defend it. And that's a different question than trying to be mealy-mouthed and work around it and have these nonsense sort of excuses. Um, and I, I don't expect that to happen, honestly. And so I think that's that's not a good development. Um, and I do think the pro-life movement, honestly, as, as shaky of a foundation as Roe always has been, I did not expect it to be overturned in my lifetime. I think the same is true of many people in the pro-life movement. 
movement. And so I do hope you're right, Ryan, that it, I, I do hope that people's attention in the movement shifts to making this as, as safe as possible because there's no way around the fact that women are going to get hurt um, in a post-Roe America because you, abortion has existed for thousands of years. People have always been trying to induce abortions. It is going to happen. It is going to be more dangerous in a, in a world where it's not legal in all of our states. Uh, and so I, I do hope um, that the pro-life movement moves in that direction and, and finds a way to make this, this new country, if the opinion is what we are, what's handed down, ultimately uh, as safe as it possibly can be for women. Right, yeah, because there's two sides. There's the ectopic pregnancy side where people who most, you know, many of them got, you know, they, it was a planned pregnancy, but it went badly. And it, it the, the fetus remains alive in, in the tube. And if you don't remove it and instead right. wait for it to die, then you have like hours before the, the woman dies as right. well. And if, and if you can't do anything, the, she, she dies. But, and then you have the side of people who are going to then seek unsafe, you know, back, back alley style abortions uh yeah. which we know how that ends for so for so many people too but thank you for your radar we will have more right after this the democratic response so far to the looming overturning of roe v wade has been to schedule a vote on codifying roe v wade into law in the senate next week but immediately there were quote-unquote concerns being expressed by susan collins as jake sherman Posted here, uh, Susan Collins has since come out and said that she will not vote to codify Roe v. Wade into law, citing these concerns about uh, Catholic hospitals. She and Lisa Murkowski put forward some type, offered to put forward some type of compromise legislation. Chuck Schumer said, no, we're not going to compromise on this. We're going to put our bill on the floor. The bill does not have the votes to overcome a filibuster, does not even have the votes. If, if there wasn't a filibuster, that leaves the party so far. Uh, with rallies on the Supreme Court steps. Here's Senator Amy Klobuchar uh, recently in a speech. So do not, do not, despite the startling nature of what we read, do not give up the fight. Because to me, the fight has just begun. We will take this fight to the state houses and we will take this fight to the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Senate right across the street. That, of course, uh, did not sound like a plan to most Democrats around the country, one of them uh, being actually California Governor Gavin Newsom, who said this at a press briefing. Where the hell is my party? Hmm. Where's the Democratic Party? Why aren't we standing up more firmly, hmm. more resolutely? Why aren't we calling this out? This is a concerted, coordinated effort. And yes, they're winning. They are. They have been. Let's acknowledge that. We need to stand up. Where's the counteroffensive? And the unwillingness to talk about abortion and to use the word abortion has left Democrats tongue-tied when they have tried to talk about it. Here's President Biden responding. So the idea that we're going to make a judgment that is going to say that no one can make the judgment to choose to abort a child based on a decision by the employee. I think goes way overboard. We're joined now by Shauna Thomas, who is executive director of Ultraviolet, a women's rights organization. Thank you so much for joining us, Shauna. Thanks for having me. So what has been your reaction to not just the Democratic response 
to this leaked opinion. But the last several years of democratic politics around abortion rights, what what should they have been doing compared to what they have been doing? Well, all the polling in the world on top of just the moral, right, the ethical thing that they should be doing is is going being on offense on this. We shouldn't be seeing Democrats just defend status quo at any point. They should have been working really hard to expand access um, to a, the full range of reproductive health rights services, including abortion. Um, the you know, it has it has been kind of the the a, a major point of contention for reproductive health rights and justice advocates and for providers of abortions that Roe v. Wade has really been the the floor right of the the bare minimum of what's needed the legal right but people millions of people have not had the access they need for a long time and this sort of this the culmination of really 30 years of investment in state legislatures and packing the courts sort of got us to this moment this did not just emerge all of a sudden this shouldn't shock anyone um, they've been telling us they're planning to do this for a long time and so it is welcome, right, on the part, certainly on the part of senators, it would be welcome were it to come from the president to recognize this moment for what it is, a stage five fire at this stage. But don't come at it at this point with a small bucket. You haven't been doing what you need to do uh, to preserve rights and to expand access. But now that we're here, we need you to really step up and lean into this moment, recognize it for what it is and do what we need. Do everything you can possible to both stop right, what's happening in the courts, but and 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 do what you need to do in the states to make sure that people can get the health care they need. So it, it seems to me um, that the, the sticking point Ryan mentioned um, in the, the Jake Sherman report about Susan Collins is uh, over Catholic hospitals. And so I guess the obvious question there is, why should Catholic hospitals not have conscious protection and why should they perform abortions? Look, Susan Collins says she wants there to be a carve out for Catholic hospitals. She wants them to have the right to decide that the life of a fetus is more important than the life of the mother. Uh, that's hugely problematic <laughs> in the sense that there are, there are, you know, I think it's something like one in seven hospitals are Catholic. There's, there's just so, there are so many people who go to hospitals that, and don't even know it's a Catholic hospital and that the, their life could be compromised um, because of a carve out like that. And look, she may be serious, but it could also be an excuse because look, it usually is with her, right? It's very hard to take someone seriously who claims to be pro-life, but takes, you know, Kavanaugh and Alito at their word that they consider Roe settled law when all the indicators pointed to them being put on the court for the purpose of overturning or severely curbing it. So I don't think one she's question considered on that, a actor. One question on that is uh, if if it's the case that Democrats should sort of get their acts together and do something about is it to protect, as you say, the rights here, then why not at least negotiate with Susan Collins and look at the compromise legislation that takes a provision like that and makes it easier for them to get to the votes they need? So there's two issues with it. One is well, if, if there was a real belief and a real theory that you could pass something like this with 
let's say even 52 votes, they'd right. still have to be willing to end the filibuster to get there. There's still there, that's still not a path to 60. I understand, you know, look, I understand that uh, Schumer's office and the, you know, various advocates, um, they're thinking around this is, look, this is this is not passing with 60 votes. So let's put forward the version that we need and that protects the most number of lives and puts the, the, the right kind of, you know, puts the right law in place. Right. Um, interestingly, Chuck Schumer decided not to put forward the one that passed the House that included a set of findings that made very clear kind of the impact of abortion restrictions and abortion bans on most vulnerable people in society around the roots of misogyny and racism behind restrictions on abortions and birth control and um and that you know there's some it, roots on the other side of the argument though too in terms of racism <laughs> and the the, so, the Planned Parenthood has plenty of racist history well that's true and I think they they surely own that um, but the the idea that it, really what I'm naming is that it, it's the the approach that the Democrats are taking right now isn't super coherent. They're saying we're not you know, we're not going to put forward a compromise bill because we can't get to 60. But we're also not going to put forward the bill that advocates have been calling for that um, that the progressive that movement really wants to see in there that passed the House. Right. Um, so they actually are putting forward a compromise in order to presumably protect a number of, you know, to, to get as many Democrats as they can on the record. And look, good, take the vote, put everyone on the record. But if you're going to compromise to actually pass something, then sure, go ahead and do that. But that's not what they're doing. They're not putting pressure on Susan Collins. They're not putting pressure on Lisa Murkowski. They're not putting pressure on Kristen Cinema to um, to support overturning the filibuster. They are performing right um right. and i think it is it, it is important for people to see where their senator where elected officials stand on other, whether women or anyone who can be can become pregnant should have control over their own bodies but like i said this is a stage five fire so don't come at it with a small bucket right we need results we need them now and and i mean truly everything is on the line if you can't do it in this moment then what can people trust you to do in any other what about the question of uh, federally funded clinics? Because if you if you are going to have states, let's say twenty six states or whatever the number is at this point that are going to that are going to immediately move to you know ban abortion, the only way around that, uh, besides a constitutional amendment that you know completely legalizes uh, abortion and enshrines Roe v. Wade, the only way around that would be federally funded clinics in those states. Is that something that Democrats are now considering? Like in other words, is is this controversy kind of radicalizing people and putting them in in these diametric camps or are democrats still kind of stuck in the well we support hyde and we, we want to compromise our way into a into a reasonable place here i think it's fair to say that there is more on the table now than there ever has been before the question is is there is there enough right is there is there enough of an understanding of what's at stake do people are people really absorbing that up to 26 states are going to move to ban abortion and that means 36 million women are going to live in states where abortion is severely re restricted or banned and the pressure that's going to put on other states that are not set up to support all of the people who are going to require abortions and need to, to go there and that's for the lucky ones right so um i do think that it's on the table i 
I don't see what I'm not seeing yet is a real commitment to moving these ideas and these solutions in a way that can succeed and is going to be successful. And I think that's going to take really determined, very clear leadership um, from the president and from Democratic leaders across the board. Yeah. Um, and it, so The Atlantic had a, a long story that they published a couple of weeks ago about the expansion of chemical abortion in different states. And a lot of that has been pushed by um, pro-choice groups, nonprofit groups like yours um, in, in different states around the country. Um, although the massive expansion of that, to, it makes it frankly it makes me nervous. Um, and I'm curious about that from your perspective, because it, it, it's some women have just horrible, horrible experiences with these chemical abortions because they don't, they're not prepared. They don't expect um, what happens after they, they take those pills. Um, as somebody who tracks that issue and advocates on behalf of this expansion, um, you know, a lot of this happens outside of doctor's offices and that's sort of the, the push going forward. Um, do you have any concerns about this rapid um, and also a pretty massive expansion uh, happening around the country? There is a massive expansion of the of, to create safe options for people, right? And part of making medical, you know, a, a medical abortion available, a pill available, is that a chemical abortion bill is is the education around what to expect, when to take it, right? Who 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 can, right? And based on who you are you know, your, your profile, right, that you can be doing it under with the guidance of, um, of practitioners, of people who are experienced, whether they're getting that through, you know, and a, a, a provider or a nurse practitioner, I mean, the expansion of um, telemedicine, I think, because of the pandemic, I think creates significantly more opportunities for people to get kind of the support that they need when they're pursuing that as an option where others are no longer available. Uh, I, you know, I, I, there's in in our minds, you know, they're creating safe kind of proven ways to access to abortion to terminate a pregnancy if you need to or want to um is is really i mean cre creating those opportunities is incredibly important because what we have seen historically is when people don't have access to something that is safe that is um that may be you know that that may create some discomfort but but can be managed and mitigated you know with support and with the right amount of education so much better so far exceeds right the 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 safety of any other method right that people have used historically i mean you know trying to end your own pregnancy without one that's facilitated by something like uphill or a a a medical doctor or a nurse practitioner or a midwife, right, has has led to just countless deaths. And that's that's the situation we're in right now. It's like, how do you make sure that people can survive um, through a crisis like this? And medical abortion is one of those, I think, very promising solutions. And you've also been uh, pushing on the corporate side. Uh, Ultraviolet's been kind of pressuring uh, major corporations who have been donating uh, to Republicans who supported this push. Is that gaining, is that gaining any traction? So we have been running a campaign for two years, um, calling on companies like AT&T, Comcast, Disney, 
who have been supporting kind of extremist Republicans up and down the ballot for years. And I would say at this moment, we are seeing more momentum and um, I think uh, real conversations inside major corporations about what their obligation is to their own employees and to their consumers um, and real concerns about you know, what happens to their brand and um, in the event that they don't take steps. The steps that we're seeing corporate major corporations take, even Bank of America, right, stepped into this space uh, a couple days ago where they're saying, look, we recognize that this is a major threat. We recognize that there's a that this is actually a business threat as much as it is a health threat to our own employees and, and our own customers. We're going to take a set of steps to make it possible for employees to access abortion. A number of other companies have done the same thing. What we're saying is that's nice. That's great. We appreciate your statement as well that you support, uh, you know, that you support uh, women's right to choose, that you believe in gender and racial equality. But if that those value statements aren't matching your political giving, if you're actively, you know, shoring up and, and supporting legislators, I mean, more than 110 companies gave like five, over $5 million to legislators who sponsored laws passed in 2021 in 16 states that have restricted access to abortions. If those companies are making these statements and yet funding the same anti-abortion legislators, we need to call that out and we need to get them to change their behavior. Um, not only because we need to try to, try to start to defund these legislators, uh, but uh, because they... Um, we, we need them to, to set a standard. We need corporations to step in here where, frankly, legislators are not, um, even on the Democratic side, to say what's acceptable and what isn't. Something I love about the show is that we're like 15 minutes deep into this interview and you just don't get that on cable, um, especially people on, on both sides here. And so I just do have one more question about the clip uh, president of President Biden that Ryan referenced earlier, where President Biden references the child. Um, and this is a longstanding debate in the, the pro-choice pro movement about sort of rhetoric, how to refer, do you just sort of openly say, you know, what, if you think it's a child, do you refer to it as a child? There's a Naomi Wolf, uh, uh, essay from like 1995 where she talks about this um, and I was at the Supreme Court the other night it did seem like there was increasing comfort with saying this is a woman's right um, you may think it is a life um, but it is a woman's right even so um, how have you seen that sort of shift and, and where do you come down on that question of you know what President Biden when President Biden referred to a child I think it's a strange thing to do to refer to a fetus as a child. Um, I and I think it, you know, it's the the question of whether we should, um, what you know, how we should think about or talk about um, what is true about, you know, what's happening inside a woman's body when she's pregnant and the state of a fetus. I, it feels like a total distraction to me because the bottom line is that there. The decision and the need to have an abortion varies. I mean, the, the, the reasons are can be very extremely complicated. They can come at very different stages. And there's just no reason for the government to play or any sort of role in figuring out where a line is, when it's acceptable to 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 determine when and if a woman can have abortion. This is healthcare. This is a conversation that should be happening between the pregnant person and their doctor. The, uh, the woman. And, Say, I'm sorry. I said, I said the woman and her doctor. 
okay, there, as we know, there are people who can be pregnant who do not identify as women. So no, I wouldn't just limit it to women. I would say anybody who can become pregnant should be able to make that decision between with their doctor. There's just no point at which we need to have uh, government intervention. And it just, and, and, and frankly, it just, it ties the hands of people who are trying to serve both, right? They, people, people want, uh, everybody involved in here to be healthy and to have healthy, you know, and to have healthy lives and be able to survive something like this. It's just unacceptable that we would want to put restrictions in place that could possibly lead to a pregnant person dying. That there's just no way to, there's no way to ground that in ethics. There's no way to ground that in anything that makes sense. So I, I, sure. No, the, the the last thing I'll say is just if you if you see it as a life, it does it makes more sense. It, it complicates the equation significantly, I would say. But if you have disagreement on that point, then that it totally makes sense. Although one so, one point on that, you know, in, in Louisiana now they they're now trying to amend the law. Currently, you know, they're, they they were going for uh, you know you cannot uh, abort any life, quote unquote life after implantation. Right. They're now amending that to fertilization. Their belief is that life is when it when it has become fertilized, which means IUDs, uh, you know, birth control, most most IVF, plan B, base, yeah. plan B most forms of birth control, contraception, uh, would be criminalized in Louisiana, and they're also moving to uh, in, involve the woman in the crime. Like she would like the she would be she would be charged as well. So, uh, if you say that's a life, then okay. Because the pill is gone. I mean, people can hold that belief if they'd like to. I still don't have any idea what that has to do with whether or not the government should be making laws about health care. That's my take on it. <laughs> if you want to believe that, that's fine. Like that, that's I don't believe that, but if other I mean, people I, do, okay. Okay, I believe in the 14th Amendment, so I believe if something is alive, it has the protection to life without uh, with, with due process. So we should probably leave it there. But I will say, Shawna, you have been extremely generous with your time and with your willingness to uh, answer questions. Um, and I really appreciate that. And I know Ryan does too. Indeed. Appreciate you having me. Thanks. Thanks. We'll be back with more Rising after this. All right, we're joined now by State Senator Becca Ballant from uh, Vermont, who was the uh, majority leader in Vermont from 2017 uh, to 2021 in the, in the Senate there and is now running for U.S. Congress. And also, I, most importantly, was my state senator last year. <laughs> Loyal viewers of this show know I was living in Vermont uh, during the pandemic uh, last year, although I, did, I don't think I knew that you were my state senator. So welcome to the program. Thank you for the invitation. And I had a bunch of kids in Dover Elementary School, and you, you were telling us that you just ran up from the floor uh, working on a bill that would make school free in public schools, or what? what's the universal school program? And then we'll get into the interview, but I'm curious about this. It's universal school meals. And so um, for breakfast and lunch, so that every child in a school in Vermont, um, both uh, public and, and independent would have access to meals both at the breakfast hour and at lunch because we feel so strongly that we we know the incredibly strong tie between someone having uh, decent food and being able to learn. And that is a focus that we've had in the Senate for years is making sure kids are ready to learn regardless of their background, as we say, regardless of their zip code, that they're showing up 
at the school doors ready to learn. And part of that is making sure they have food. And so we wanted to talk about the the, the house race in Vermont because it's a, it's an extremely important one, not just because there's only one member of Congress that comes from Vermont, but also both of Vermont senators are, and they, uh, this, this is not breaking any news, they're nearing <laughs> the end of their careers. And, and so the, the current, one of the current congressmen, Peter Welch, just is moving now seamlessly, basically without any uh, contest from the U.S. House into the into the Senate. And so there's now a contested primary, a Democratic primary. And you've got a kind of what we would call here in D.C., a cor- corporate Democrat, Molly Gray, who was uh, she's still lieutenant governor. She was lieutenant governor. Uh, and then you have kind of two candidates fighting out in the progressive lane that yourself and and Kesha Rahm from she's state representative from. Bur- near Burlington, is that right? Senator state senator now. Yeah. Right. And so, so this, so this is an interesting situation. Because progressives have had a difficult time in around the country consolidating, whereas the establishment candidates have have often, uh, as we saw, you know, most famously in the 2020 presidential campaign, consolidating around one candidate and knocking out, knocking out the progressive challenger. And so, what what is what is the progressive movement in in Vermont doing in this race like how and how are how are you trying to make sure that you're distinguishing yourself as the rival to to Molly Gray in this in this primary because whoever wins this primary is you know basically going on to win the house seat so I really appreciate the question because I think a lot of people are are watching this race both in Vermont and outside and you know what I want people to know is I am the same candidate I've always been which is a progressive democrat from one of the most progressive uh, districts in the state. So you, you basically have the district around Brattleboro, Vermont, and the district around Burlington that are, are the most progressive. So I have been, um, as you said, the majority leader, but also as the president pro tem, have consistently passed uh, progressive legislation that Vermonters have, have counted on. And so for me, one of the distinctions is I have not just stood up for these issues. I've been the one within the Senate making sure these issues pass, whether it's minimum wage increases, paid family leave, uh, climate action investments, housing investments, uh, the most reproductive, the most progressive reproductive um, legislation in the country. So I have a strong track record of making sure we have the votes in the caucus on votes on the floor and feel of all of the candidates in the race. I am the one who has delivered on progressive values. Now, it is an interesting question to always, to consider how's it going to shake out in the race. I have uh, quite a few progressives who are behind me and endorsing me. Um, I have a very big tent of support. And one of the things I would want your viewers to know is I was elected to the position of president pro tem, first ever woman, first ever uh, openly gay person to be in leadership in either chamber. And I was elected unanimously. So progressives voted for me, Republicans voted for me, Democrats voted for me because I am someone who's known as a straight shooter. I have integrity and I get work done. I don't just, uh, you know, make public statements about uh, wanting, you know, aspirationally to get work done. I actually do the work on the ground uh, to pass that legislation. So I think that is a strong distinction. And I think it's also important for folks to know I came to this work as a middle school teacher. I always joke that if you can teach middle school, you can do just about anything. And sometimes being in politics and being in leadership is a lot like uh, teaching middle school. 
But more importantly, I taught in four different rural schools in Vermont. And I understand at a very deep level what families are, are going through working families here in Vermont. And that informs all of the work and the decision making that I do. Amazing moment uh, while we're talking about <laughs> teaching for Ryan's daughter to make a cameo there. Um, Becca. Daughter. <laughs> Does she want to say hi, Ryan? Yeah, she's, uh, she's, home, with COVID. she's home with COVID today. Oh. oh. So, Becca, one question I have for you. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, one question I have for you is it seems like a very legitimate selling point in this primary is exactly what you just said, that you've been able to bring in Republican voters, independent voters. Vermont is such an interesting and rich political state. Uh, and so what, have, what lessons have you learned over your career in politics that allow you to uh, bring that coalition together? Uh, really? You know, it comes back to people understanding that I am a woman of values, and those values include believing in the power of community and connection, that we as Vermonters are able to come together on really hard issues, even if we have uh, political disagreements, even if we have philosophical disagreements, that in the end, when you walk in this building, you are here because you want to show up for your constituents, as we say here in Vermont, the, peop the people back home, who are the people that sent you here to do the work. And time and time again, I have shown that I am truly someone who comes to the work with an open heart and an open mind. And even if someone has voted against, uh, you know, my rights, and, and I just, I mean, this is, this goes to the heart of it for me, is that when I first came into the Senate, I served with people who voted against my rights to marry my spouse, who voted against civil unions, who voted against same-sex marriage, but I still showed up, did the work with them in committee, did not write them off as human beings and thought, you know what, that was hurtful. That was not uh, something that um, I can forget easily, but in the end, I have to put those things aside to be able to do work for my constituents because that's why I was sent here. And that has what is has guided me throughout my time here. And honestly, I, I mean it most sincerely that if you can do the work within a middle school of everyone who is struggling with their identity and their ego um, and see them as the, the human beings that they are, you, you can bring that work into politics, and I think it serves me well. Well, Becca, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about uh, your work up in Vermont. We really appreciate it and hope you have a great weekend. I really appreciate the time, and you too. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much. We'll be back with more Rising right <laughs> after this. Well, Chantel Brown defeated Nina Turner twice this year, officially on Tuesday for the second time. We are very lucky to be joined now by Nina Turner, who is here to offer some reactions on what happened in the race. There was an influx of pro-Israel money that came into the race, and I know we're going to get into all of that. Um, there were similar patterns in both of those races uh, that played out over the course of this last year. So, Nina, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Emily. Yeah, it's always, it's always great to talk to you. And I'm just going to start off by asking for some reflections on this the second of two campaigns that you uh, ran this year. Yeah, back to back because of the special election. I will say it was not so much that she defeated me as much as big money defeated me in both times. 
if there had been a strictly head-to-head, woman-to-woman race, there is no doubt that I would be Congresswoman Nina Turner at this moment. But unfortunately, dark money groups flooded into this race as they did last year. Um, Super PACs flooded in here. We know that a crypto billionaire jumped into this race, placing a million dollars. And people have to ask themselves, it wasn't anything so spectacular about her run. So why is it that cryptocurrency billionaire and and uh, oil bareness and others. I mean, Emily, they were making up super PACs. At a certain point, there were so many super PACs in this race against me. It was, it was, dis- it was, it was very, we, we couldn't keep up with the number of super PACs. So I think a larger reflection beyond my run, because we see this pattern happening all over the country where races are no longer decided at the ballot box. They're decided in boardrooms across this country. That how does that impact this very still very young uh, representative democracy and what does that mean going forward when big money can decide who leads specific communities knowing that they really don't care about the needs the hopes and the dreams and even the fears of said communities yeah and after after the race uh justice democrats gave a rather rather what i thought was almost startling uh comment to kale lacy my colleague at the intercept for an article she wrote on the race where she asked you know, where, where were you? You, know, you guys backed uh, Nina Turner last time around. Why do you get in this time? And they gave an unusually blunt and honest answer. They said there's so much dark money, so much big money being spent on against Nina Turner that we have to make decisions. You know, the, if the country is a chessboard, we have to decide you know, where we're going to move our pieces. And we can't afford to keep up with the amount of spending that is being thrown down against uh, against Nina Turner. Uh, meanwhile, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which had backed you in uh, the previous race, ended up endorsing Chantel Brown, who became a member of of the CPC. Uh, you told Jordan Sheridan, who's done some terrific uh, reporting on this race, Jordan Sheridan of Status Quo, independent news outlet, uh, that some of the, the squad members had been kind of threatened to stay away from the race. I've done a little bit of reporting on that in I've, I've heard that the the Congressional Black Caucus in particular uh, was was animated about this race. And so I kind of want to ask, is that what you had heard? And also why? I'm not I'm not breaking any news to say that both you and Chantel Brown are both black. So what why why would the Congressional Black Caucus be so invested in one candidate over the other here? If that's what you had heard. Yeah, I heard I heard something very similar, Ryan, no doubt about it. I mean, they need to answer that question. Um, I think that, you know, even from the last race last year, I was told by a supporter that navigates those spaces. And this will is very uh, germane to this race, too. But I was told by a supporter who actually navigates the corporate Democrat spaces and and. They ask these people, you know, why do you guys come at Nina Turner so hard? You know, she's a Democrat, too. And he was told I'm not the right kind of Democrat. So I think that that answers the question even in this race as well, because I'm not the right kind. And being the right kind means that I speak up and I speak out. I center the people that I'm running to serve, not corporate interests, not owner donors. And so that is a problem for certain Democrats. And we know that the corporatist powers, whether they're whether they're rocking for Republicans or rocking for Democrats, they're rocking. (laughs) And we know that they control. Unfortunately, they control the lovers of power in this country and something must be done about it. And I rail against that all the time. So that doesn't make me particularly the flavor. 
<laughs> for well, the congressional for you know for the for the congressional black caucus. Yeah, and folks on a national level might not realize there's a pretty significant Jewish community in this district. And Nina, this second campaign, you spent a lot of time making outreach to the Jewish community to try to combat the message that there's, I mean, there's no doubt that big money tried to make the wedge issue here, the Israel uh, debate. And so when you were engaging in this outreach to the Jewish community, how did you sort of respond to the concerns um, that people had that were, at, I mean, there's just no question, definitely fueled by a lot of outside spending? Yeah, I mean, and those concerns were a falsism. There's sometimes, you know, when you're running as a candidate and people might pull stuff from your background and manipulate it for their, for their purposes. On this, you know, being, um, being labeled as anti-Israel, anti-Semitic was a flat out lie. And so I had a very good team, uh, Jewish leaders, director and, and coordinators on my team that, you know, helped me to begin to have those kind of conversations to seek first to understand and then to be understood, understood to, to quote Stephen Covey. And so I approached it in that way. Like, this is a lie. There's no there's no gray here. This is a lie used to to malign my name. And I did make some inroads. You know, I did have some Jewish leaders tell me that they know that it was a lie. Some Jewish leaders were in the rooms where things were being plotted against me, knowing that it was in fact a lie. And we see groups like APAC and DMFI, Democratic Majority for Israel, they're doing that to several candidates. Let us not forget that in 2020, after Senator Bernie Sanders, who is Jewish, <laughs> after his heart attack, DMFI put out one of the most disgusting commercials against Senator Bernard Sanders in Iowa. So Democratic majority for Israel, you know, they, I mean, what they're doing, I mean, they're, they're, they're fighting against uh, people like Summer Lee, who's running and, and just a whole host of candidates. And it seems that they come down particularly hard against candidates, progressive black women. Uh, and that's a pattern that they have. And it doesn't matter that the candidates that they back from time to time on the opposite side are black. We have to question the impact of out, not just outside money, but also do people get to just totally make up stuff about you? Something that inflammatory, you know, it's very hurtful. So, Emily, you're right. The, the large Jewish, I served the, the, this community, part of the Jewish community when I was a state senator. So I've always had uh, the largest portion of the Jewish community as a state senator and the, the congressional district is half was half of my Senate district. So I'm not new to this community, but what these types of groups are able to do is, is, is terrible. And people should speak out against it a little more. I'm glad for J Street, you know, uh, groups, even my local, I had a lot of local um, leaders and just activist types actually write letters to the editor in the Cleveland Jewish News. And that was refreshing for me this time around. I didn't necessarily have that last time, but a lot of Jewish leaders actually spoke up this time and that, that really made me proud. Hmm. And, and while those groups are animated by a, a, you know, a hawkish support of, of Israel, that, doesn't, that isn't usually what the ads are about. So in, in this That's race, right. Uh, how like what? So even though they're APAC funded and DMFI funded ads, what was the con what was the content of those ads? Were they about Israel or were they about other things? Oh, no, just how they, you know, slandered or went against Senator Sanders. No, it was about me being divisive. Right. There are a lot of polling going on because I had people in my circles who live in this district. So they were getting the poll. They were tracking, trying to see what would stick to me. So they just turbo boosted the message they, they did against me last time. So the foundation was I'm, I'm divisive. I'm not a real Democrat. 
you know, that because they know this district is solidly Democrat, just solidly. And so they were playing on that, 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 and they just turbo boosted. As a matter of fact, Ryan and Emily, I got a hit piece against me in my mailbox just yesterday. And I'm just shaking my <laughs> head because they're still coming. It was, they still coming, right? I, but I have my grandson, I tell a story about him and I put together puzzle pieces. And they use that very beautiful story about my grandson and myself. And my grandson is two years old and manipulated my words. It is just infuriating how far these people in these groups will go. A charter school association jumped into this race. Of course, the, the blue dog corporate is Democrats. When I tell you, it is no exaggeration, the number of packs. And I'm thinking, you know, I had one of my dear friends say to me, well, you know, uh, Nina, they, they must fear you because the, the president had to jump into this race too. You know, you got the war in Ukraine going on. You got inflation, you know, trying to figure out all kinds of things that are going wrong, both internationally and d domestically. And the president jumped into this race. So that tells you the level of pressure that my team and I were under, especially the last two weeks of this race. And that is why I say that if these groups had not jumped in, if these people had not jumped into this race and it was just a head to head, I would have won this race both times. And on that point, I think this is, oh, go ahead, Ryan. Did you have a question? Oh, no, I mean, I was just going to ask what's next for you, but yeah. you could finish with that if you, Emily, you've got something first. No, that's perfect. That's, that's exactly what I was going to yeah. ask. Yeah, so yeah. So what? what's next for Nina Turner? You know, I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep being out there. As uh, you both know, I didn't stop even after the special election. This is a mission for me. I am on assignment to lift the poor, the working poor, and the barely middle class in this country. So if I will not be doing that in the halls of Congress at this time, I will continue to be in the streets, lifting and motivating the people, calling out big money interests that do not serve the interests of the everyday people in this country from all walks of life and all identities. That doesn't stop. The beautiful thing is that I will be totally unleashed. So watch <laughs> our world. <laughs> I bet that's going to feel great. <laughs> It does. Yeah. No, the, the work continues, you know, just in summation. The work continues. And I, I really care deeply, so I'm not going to stop. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Looking forward to what's next. Thank you, Thank you both. Thanks, Nina. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Right, well, the New York Times dropped a 20,000-word piece on Tucker Carlson last week um, that I really wanted to talk about here because I think it says a lot about the media and particularly a lot about the left and not things that are uh, particularly flattering in that respect. So, Ryan, I'm certainly curious to get your response. But as you see in that headline from The Hill there, Tucker Carlson did brush off that huge hit piece um, that dubbed him, quote, an American nationalist. Um, he posted a picture of himself actually <laughs> smiling with a copy of the article. And that really leads us to a really interesting point in and of itself. Ten years ago, five years ago, any cable host uh, would have been so fearful of the effects of a hit piece like that in the so-called paper of record in the New York Times, there's no way you would have seen the gleeful sort of boasting um, on social media holding a paper like that. It does seem that the legacy media is really finally losing a, so much of its credibility and along with that, so much of its power to the point where the highest watched person in late night um, is, I think, 
gets smeared, and Ryan, you may disagree, I'm curious on whether this was a smear. Um, he gets smeared in the paper, holds it up, and it, it's not even an issue for him. He just sort of brushes past it. Uh, so what was your reaction to the reaction <laughs> to this hit piece, Ryan? Yeah. Well, it's, it's very similar to the reaction to the New York Times reporters exposing audio of Kevin McCarthy you know, basically saying the thing that he said that he had never said. And if you remember, you, you and I, yeah. at, as that story was breaking, we're saying, you know what? And, and we kind of went against the grain of what the press was saying at the time, which is that, you know what? And the reason that he's fine here, uh, that he's here, like his, his enemies are MSNBC, the New York Times, because they went on Rachel Maddow, uh, and also Liz Cheney. And so... In our new tribal politics, what you stand for doesn't even matter that much. It's who you stand against. And so as long as you have the right enemies, then you're fine. And so Tucker Carlson having the New York Times as an enemy then tells his viewers, all right, then he must be doing the right thing. Yeah, so Nick Confessori, who was one of the people on the byline, um, I think did something very ill-advised. He tweeted a long thread about the story where he presented the uh, idea that Tucker Carlson is an outright racist, um, which is just a, an absolutely disgusting thing to say. But he, he touted that idea. He, he said, this is not opinion, it's fact. He, and this is what Confessori said in his thread. And to me, that's the heart of the problem, right? Like, I think it's a, a opinion that Tucker Carlson has been flirting with ideas people call racism. Some people might say it is outright racism. I disagree with that vehemently, but it is an opinion. I think, though, for uh, legacy reporters to present this as a fact and not an opinion, and in fact, to actually emphasize and insist that it is fact, not opinion, is a huge source of their drained credibility. And I, I think it's fair to say that's an opinion rather, rather than a fact, but it's an opinion based on what our kind of accepted analysis of what racism is over the last like 30 or 40 years is. And what's going on here is that Tucker's trying to overturn that and to say, no, I'm going to do all of these things that we had essentially agreed are racist, but I'm going to say that they're, they're not racist and I'm going to explain why they're, why they're not racist. And I'm going to actually say that you are the real racist. Like that's, that's the other move that gets made a lot here that actually it's the other side that is a racist, you know, with a Spider-Man meme with everybody pointing at each other. <laughs> uh, and so it, it, it has then by definition kind of become contested terrain. I can, I can agree with the opinion, but it, but I think you're right that it's, it's now, it's now contested territory. And Democrats would be in a much better position to say that, no, our analysis of this, uh, of, of what constitutes racism is, is accurate if they were continuing to hold or grow the number of people of color who are in their coalition rather than rather than shedding them at, at this point. So if they want to be able to make that argument, they've got to, I think they've, they've, they've got to, they've got to do better in, in building their, their coalition into one that agrees with them. Right, and I think it's what's contributing to them being less and less powerful by the day. And what's interesting to me is they seem completely blind to that. And that's why the confessory tweets were so interesting to me is because like, listen, this doesn't, this doesn't fly with readers. And the New York Times now has a subscriber base that is basically, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a niche, right? And that's what happens when our media splinters and fragments into all of these different niches. They're more responsive to the sort of coastal 
educated folks who subscribe to the New York Times, and they don't have to be responsive to you know the country in the area of mass, like they would have in the era of mass media, like a more broader audience. So it, it kind of makes sense from a business perspective why they've leaned so hard into this. But I still think it's a huge source of pub the public's institutional distrust. They ran a story yesterday about Elon Musk, um, or on Thursday about Elon Musk, that again was just this sort of like weird guilt by association. He grew up in apartheid South Africa. They buried in the story these ideas that these points from people who grew up with him saying, you know, of course, no, he wasn't racist. He didn't have any of the sort of racist inclinations. Um, and yet still the New York Times tied him, I think, with a lot of innuendo to these problems in, in South Africa at the time. Um, it was just like, it's so, it's so gross. And I don't know, Ryan, how much longer you think they'll continue to sort of take these stabs. Um, do you think because they have the, subs the subscriber base that's sort of winnowed um, to a, a, a vehement sort of left of center educated group of people, do you think it, it just keeps going? Or do you think at some point uh, you know, it's, it stops and they say, OK, enough. Uh, there's a, a way to do this that uh, is going to be more consensus. Well, they're stuck in a little bit of a contradiction because they're, they do have a you know, pro progressive subscriber base. And if they're going to come at things from a, a progressive angle, without taking on you know, corporate power or, or kind of global power, global corporate power, then you're, go then you're going to be stuck just doing pieces about Elon Musk's you know, up upbringing in, in South Africa, instead of saying, okay, let's take a look at uh, where, where Elon Musk's money is coming from on this question. So let's, let's stipulate that there is a censorship problem with twitter.com, fine, mm -hmm. fine, that's, that's accurate. And the question is, is Elon Musk the one that's going to solve that? Maybe I think Elon Musk, uh, if he were truly independent, may, maybe actually could be. I don't I don't have the same kind of uh, you know, reflexive hostility that so many people on the left have. Then maybe he would be. But he's not an independent actor. A lot of you know, his Tesla is like what half dependent on resources coming out of China. Uh, the, the recent. Uh, disclosures about where he's getting investment money from or what a uh, Qatar and and Saudi Arabia I believe so uh, these would not Qatar Saudi Arabia and uh, China are are not exactly known as like foes of censorship or like advocates of great free speech and so China was very upset at the way that Twitter handled Hong Kong mm -hmm. because Twitter refused to take down posts from you know activists in Hong Kong and but Twitter isn't dependent on China, and so was able to say, you know what, this is our this is our policy. Uh, if you're if you're a Twitter user in Hong Kong, you can post you know what you want as long as it's within our these particular guidelines. What happens uh, when uh, something like this happens again, and China you know puts pressure on Musk and says we, you know we don't want Taiwanese accounts to be able to post. And, you know I think Musk himself, just as a person would believe very strongly that he, that China has no right to make that demand. Musk, the CEO of Tesla, that needs all of the materials from China to keep his yes. business going, is going to have a much harder time saying that. That could be an interesting place for the Times uh, to go, but that it, that 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 you know gets them crosswise with some of the other uh, politics that, of their coalition.
Yeah, no, I don't disagree with that. And there's uh, when Nick Confessori tweeted the piece out, he said Carlson was soon back on the air to accuse liberals and big tech of trying to silence everyone else. And it's such a just amazing lack of self-awareness that if the story was an attempt at doing anything, um, it was discrediting Tucker Carlson to turn down the volume of, of his voice, clearly. Um, and so because there's one network uh, that has somebody like Tucker Carlson on it, you know, that's that should be enough uh, for the right. And that's, you know, the kind of the perspective that I think is, is being taken here. Uh, Ryan, any final thoughts on the 20,000 word? I mean, <laughs> I, mean it, I mean, it is true that Tucker is a cultural phenomenon and that and that I think he is playing to people's very worst instincts and throwing uh, gasoline on a fire that's that's already raging. And uh, the, the New York Times uh, pointing that out, I don't know what that's going to ultimately do in the end. It's just it just seems like we're just doomed to watch all of this just just crash. Yeah, and my recommendation for Tucker's detractors would be to like sit through a few full episodes. I think it's a, it's a different show than a lot of people um, would expect it to be. But with that, uh, you know, you can you can of course read that on the New York Times website if you must. Um, actually, it's kind of interesting piece of of media. So we will be back with more rising right after this. The FDA has announced it's going to be recommending restrictions on the J&J &J vaccine. It's not going to be outright pulled, but they're going to basically what they're what they're telling people is that if you can get a different vaccine that is not J&J, &J, then you should get that unless you specifically uh, unless you specifically request J&J. &J. And, and the, perp, the what they're basically citing are blood clots. These are the same issues that had it pulled back in uh, what is it, April of 2021. It, 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 it rolled out very quickly. I actually wound up with it. We can talk about that in a second. Uh, and then, then it, was, it was pulled shortly after I got it. And then it was re-implemented over this issue of these, of these blood clots. So what do you, what do you make of this? Uh, you know, deep, deep, you know, we're deep into the uh, vaccine period that now they're coming back and saying, you know what, actually, let's, let's try to minimize use of this as much as possible. I think this is one of the biggest disasters of the entire COVID period. And, and I don't think there's any way going back from what a level of institutional distrust this is going to, how much this is going to contribute to the decline in institutional distrust. Because if you rewind the tape um, back to when this vaccine first came out, when all the vaccines first came out, the way that so-called experts were talking about it is so completely diametrically opposed to the fact that now they would actually take this step of recommending the other vaccines over it because they acknowledge there are problems with the, the rare blood clots. People would say there's no, you, you don't have to wait for the experiment to play out. We know what's going to happen with all of these drugs down the line with great confidence. It's all fine. And so for the, an actual official sort of arm of the government to walk that back, um, you know, it's, it's true these blood clots are rare, but to walk that back after the level of confidence and smugness and uh, just speaking down to people, um, exerting control over people to, to walk that back, I, I think is an incredible disaster. And the, the argument that the public health authorities are making is that at, at the time, well, A, they have more data, they're saying, uh, but at the time, uh, the risk of getting COVID uh, outweighed the risk of getting the vaccine and there wasn't enough vaccine around. Now there's enough of the other vaccines so that they can now, uh, you know, t take a more cautious approach to J&J. I think the problem with that is that the people who were most susceptible to these blood clots 
my understanding, women in their kind of 20s, 30s and 40s uh, are, are not the most susceptible to you know, hospitalization and death from COVID. And so if they knew ahead of time, you know, they, what they could have said is that if you're a woman in your 20s, 30s, 40s, don't take right. don't take J and J. Whereas whereas they, they were messaging that that those were the people who were more at risk, but they didn't kind of come out with a hard you know, sell to say, you know, don't don't move forward with this vaccine. And, and you know, after the pause, they came back and said, OK, uh, you know, this is this is safe, safe and effective was the word that you, know, the, you, you would hear on the radio or you'd, you'd hear from the FDA. Right. And that's what's so frustrating about this is, you know, average citizens are not scientists and cannot be expected to be medical experts or scientific experts and evaluate the, uh, the efficacy of every vaccine. We outsource that work to other people. We can put in as much work as possible to make sure that we're safe, our families are safe. But ultimately, the interpretation of the science, uh, we do outsource to people. We need to have that trust. Trust. Um, and so I think, Ryan, everything you just outlined makes complete sense. Um, and yet it's still so frustrating that the safe and effective line w- was trotted out. And here we are like two years later. I mean, I- I'm vaccinated. I hope my friends and family are vaccinated. Um, but it- it's I feel like this is just a devastating blow to public trust that has been de- that has been devastating over and over again for the last two years. Um, I- it's it's so vindicating for people who said there were problems with this vaccine and were were talked down to and criticized and actually marginalized um, in so many different ways. And there's also a racial and a racial justice element to this. And I think one of the mistakes that public health authorities made at at the beginning was in a very well-meaning way, they started messaging that they were going to kind of put people of color in, in the in the front of the line for the vaccine and and the there there were a variety of arguments that were made for why this was some of it had to do with you know frontline workers being you know being disproportionately people of color others you know were were more connected to kind of like le- legacy of of racism and and almost kind of entered into like reparation conversations but what they didn't understand is that for people of color in this country, that message is received in a completely different way than it's it's being intended. What what so many people heard was, oh, you want to experiment on us with this vaccine yes. first. It wasn't like because when when on earth had kind of the you know, white public health officials around the country done something actively good for you know for no reason for people of color in this country? What, what if you know this? And I genuinely think that they had they had good intentions, but you can imagine how that would be looked at with such skepticism. Yes. And then I actually, I actually wound up, uh, and there was also a little uh, kind of b- subtle racism to it as well, or I can explain how. Like, so I was living in Vermont at the time, and Vermont had a policy that people of color and their households uh, could, get the, could get the vaccine first. That was their explicit policy. Uh, a very small people of color community in, in Vermont. Uh, but because my wife was a, uh, and is a person of color, <laughs> Uh, they reached out to her and said, you're, you're now eligible for the vaccine as is everybody in your household. So me, that meant I got, <laughs> I was front of the line for this. Uh, and so they, I, and I told her, I was like, I bet they're going to give the Johnson and Johnson. And it, yeah. and it was the, and it was the Johnson and Johnson. And as they, the public health authorities explained, it was because they didn't trust these marginalized communities to come back for the second shot. And Disgusting. so, so many more people of color wound up getting, uh, the Johnson and Johnson, then the Pfizer and Moderna, and so now here we are, uh, 
with the the initial suspicions of people, the initial skepticism of people kind of be, being being borne out, even if it wasn't a, a, a direct line. I would call that the soft bigotry of low expectations, but that is worse yeah, is. than soft. Is. That is, yeah. that, I mean, it is yeah. just, it's, it is disgusting. Um, and it's, it's a problem with a lot problem. of this. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And, and maybe I'll talk about yeah. this next week on uh, Rising Friday, but the there's, if you go back and, and watch one of the most embarrassing, uh, lame excuses for a comedian in the country is Jordan Klepper, just a, a classism machine. Um, if you go back and watch a man on the street interview he did um, on the vaccine, I think it was in New York City, I think I'll probably just talk about this on the show, we can add it in post. It's insane to rewind the tape and look at how people were talked to for having some of these concerns that have now been vindicated um, by the government officials that were telling everybody it was fine and the sort of dutiful uh, media lapdogs that took their cues from them and just tore the country um, and tore working people, uh, you know, average people who have very good reasons not to trust institutions to shreds. Uh, incredible stuff if you rewind the tape. Indeed. Well, we, this is a Rising Friday has, has come to an end, sadly. But of course, we'll be back here next week. If you ever have any trouble keeping track of what day it is, <laughs> just if you see Ryan and I, that means the weekend is here. So maybe we can sort of start generating a Pavlovian response uh, with all of you. You see us, you know the weekend is here, and then you love us. <laughs> Unless you wait until Monday to watch this, then, man, are you in for a rude surprise. <laughs> true okay well watch it on fridays then <laughs> help us out well also speaking of helping us out don't forget to like share and subscribe so you never miss any content and for those of you who like to listen while on the go we are also available anywhere you listen to podcasts we so appreciate all of your kind words and feedback we've been doing this show for several weeks now having so much fun uh so please make sure to tune in every friday and with that we will see you next friday and ryan you better be here in person <laughs> i'll be there i'll be there Can't we'll keep see me you away. then Yes, we'll see you then.